as we continue in our series called Grip by Grace, as we are taking a journey through the entire book of Romans. We're kind of splitting this up in sections, and so uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 this week and next week, and then we're going to take a week off um, because I have a special message I want to bring to the church, and then we'll pick up chapter 4, and that will be just in time, and we'll do a series. We'll drop off for a while, do a series through the Christmas holiday season. So Romans chapter 3, we're going to be covering the first 20 verses in this chapter today. The title of this message is God's Final Verdict. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever been to the doctor's office and the doctor gave you a diagnosis you did not want to hear. Right, so maybe you've been having some chest pain and you go to the doctor, a cardiologist, and he says, well, I'm going to tell you, you have a few blockages that are beginning to form and uh, if you don't do something about that, I'm going to have to probably put stents in there in order to alleviate the blockage. However, I think you can treat it by just watching what you eat, reducing your stress, exercising more, you know, getting yourself more healthy. Now, at that point, I can do one of two things. I can either accept the doctor's diagnosis and his remedy, or I can say, well, thank you, Doc. Um, I, think I'll, um, I think I'll go home, and on my way home, I'll stop and eat a couple burritos from Taco Bell and think about that. Amen. Right? So, <laughs> so if, I, if I refuse to listen to the diagnosis, and I think to myself, because only human beings have a difficult time distinguishing between reality and fantasy. Fantasy would say, well... I don't care what the doctor says, I'm going to eat what I want, I'm going to have as much stress as I want, I'm going to not exercise at all, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I think I'll be healthy. That's living in fantasy world. Reality says, I, I have the diagnosis, I, now I need to take the remedy and ap apply it to my life. And nothing changes in my life until I accept the diagnosis and I actually put the remedy into practice. And this is what Paul has been saying to us all the way up through chapters 1 and 2. He simply has been saying, listen, um, the reason why your life is not working, the reason why you're having such difficulty, the reason why there's so much depression, anxiety, you're bumping up against things is because you have a problem, a fundamental problem, and the fundamental problem is the problem of sin, Right? So sin is a word that we, you know, in our day and time don't like to talk about, don't like to think about, but, but sin isn't like, oh, I do certain things wrong. Paul goes deeper than that. He says it goes much deeper than that. It's not about the things you're doing wrong. The reason why you're doing things wrong that are harmful to you is because sin fundamentally has, has contaminated your entire being. It has contaminated your mind, your emotions, your heart. Your body, every aspect of your life has been contaminated by sin, but don't worry, God has a remedy. And the remedy is, he started right out in the first chapter, the remedy is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has addressed the issue of humanity's sin so that we can experience new life. Not just like trying to fix up the old life, not just trying to do some behavior modification that might change a few things, but no, he says, we're going to go to the heart of the matter because at the heart of the matter is the matter of the human heart. 
And that's where we're going to start. And you can become a brand new creation in Christ. And God can begin transforming your life in ways you never dreamed possible. And so he addressed um, three different groups of people in the very first two chapters. He says, now I know what the pushback's going to be. Uh, well, the rebellious people are going to say, well, I don't even know if I believe in God, right? He may or may not exist. I'm not sure. But what I do know is this. Um, I want to be at the center of my life. I want to be at the center of my being, and therefore life revolves around me. I'll make my own decisions. I'll pave my own way. I'll charter my own path. I really don't need God's input. And so he, he began fleshing out how that evolves in our lives and how sin begins to overtake our mind, will, and emotions and all the things that transpire because of that, and none of them are healthy. And then he went to those who were respectable, because the respectable group would say, well, you know, I might be, you know, I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than Tom. Uh, I might not be perfect, but I'm better than Michael. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? Can I? So, so the respectable person would say, what do we do? We take ourselves and we use our lives as the measurement of comparison. Like, you know, I may not be as good as this person, but there are a lot of people down here a whole lot worse than me, and therefore, I think God and I are good. And Paul would say, you're not good. You're, you're not tight with God. You don't even have a relationship with him. You have no fellowship with him. You're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he go, moves to the religious people, because the religious people are saying, well, you know, I go to church, I pray, I read my Bible, I, I, I give, I help the poor, I do all these things. Surely God sees those things and says to me, you're in, right? You're, you're, you have paved the way to heaven, you've earned your way there, you've earned your way into my good graces, and therefore, um, wow. Lucky me to have you. Let me applaud you. And so um, Paul came back and said, no, no, I'm sorry. I know you've done all these things, but they do not make you righteous or right in God's eyes. They do not. Those things have no way of eradicating your sin debt to change the things that you have done wrong. The moment you bring works to the table of grace, where God says he wants to give you grace and forgive you and cancel the debt and, and, and set you free, the moment you bring works to the table of grace, you've just nullified grace because now you've earned it. Paul says you can't earn a relationship with God. You can't earn a right standing in God's eyes. It is something that God must do. So Paul says, here's what, how he culminated all this. He goes, listen, I know you want to think that you're not part of the problem, but you're part of the solution, but exactly the opposite is what's true. You are the problem, and you're not the solution. Because you're the problem, God supplied the solution, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so Paul is unfolding this entire book around the gospel of Christ. And in this first section, he's dealing with the issue of sin. And then he's going to deal, starting next week, with, the, with salvation, God's remedy for our sin problem and issue. And then he's going to show us how the gospel can change fundamentally the way that we live and the way we see ourselves. And, and I mean, from the core of our being to resulting in our actions and and how God is, is, is going to do all this for us through Jesus. And so 
What Paul does in Romans chapter 3 as he comes to this, he, some of the religious Jews, they're all ticked off at Paul. They're like, hey, we ain't that bad. And, and so they start objecting to Paul's uh, conclusion. So what Paul does is he, he, he ends uh, part of chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. He's like a, a lawyer in a court case. And so now he's going to bring all of humanity. This is the fourth group, the entire human race. He's going to put us all on trial. And so like a skilled lawyer would do, he's going to deal with the objections. In his mind, okay, I've just laid out, you know, my arraignment against humanity. And so like any skilled uh, prosecuting attorney, he's thinking in his mind, I wonder what the jurors are thinking what their objections would be or what the objections of humanity would be against the case that I've laid out. So in the first eight verse, nine verses, he, he addresses those objections. And then again, like a good prosecuting attorney, he, he comes in with some more supporting evidence and then he makes a closing argument and he asks God for the verdict and God renders his verdict. That's how the first 20 verses of this chapter is, is laid out. So let's look at, first of all, the objections that people are bringing up against it. So here's regarding the, the Jews, it's, it's the Jewish uniqueness. So um, here's what they say in verse 1 of chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Some of your translations might say the oracles of God. We're talking about the, like the living word of God has been entrusted into their care. So here's what the Jewish people, those who Paul says to the Jews, you know, I know you're religious. Uh, you're working real hard. You get, you're circumcised and you're obeying the law. You're following the law as best you can. And uh, you're going to synagogue and you're doing all the right things and following all the Jewish holidays and so they push back and say, well, Paul, if we're not righteous, if we're not right with God, why in the world are we doing this? What advantage is there to us to even doing these things? Now, in, in our vernacular, we'd say, let's take out the word Jew. Let's put in the word Christian. We would say, God, well, then if religion doesn't do it for me, then why do I need to pray? And why do I come to church? And why do I read the Bible? And why do I give? And why do I serve? And why do I, if that is not obtaining for me a righteousness that puts me in a great standing with God, then why in the world would I do all these things? Now, to those who are unbelievers, they would say something like, well, uh, this is why I don't go to church. This is why I don't read the Bible. This is why I don't do these things because I know people who do and they're no better off than I am. And so Paul, um, he, he addresses this, this objection, and he says to, to the Jews, um, here's what God did for you. Now, in chapter 9 of Romans, he's going to give them a lot of reasons why they have an advantage as being the people of God, the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, and, and how God's going to continue to use them later on. So, um, but Paul does say, Hey, God has given you the, the very words of God himself. Now, this is very important because the Bible teaches us that when we, uh, when we follow the word of God, we place ourselves under the umbrella, umbrella of God's blessings. Like, if, if I look at the Bible and what the Bible says about what's wrong with me and what the remedy is, and I, I, I say, you know what? I'm putting my faith, my hope, and my trust in Jesus 
as my Savior Lord, then I follow the, the umbrella of God's blessings. And what, what is God's blessing? It is that salvation is the forgiveness of my sin, is the canceling of my debt. It's a beginning a brand new life with Christ. And so we, 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 we hear the word of God, we respond. Now, in this day and time, the problem was there was battle, there was conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, you were the Jewish Gentile. If you were Gentile, it just meant you weren't Jew. They were constantly conflicting with one another. And so the Gentiles would say, the, the Jews would say to the Gentiles, well, we're the good people, you're the bad people. And the Gentiles said, no, we're the good people, you're the bad people. And God came along and said, no, you, you, don't, you don't understand. Jesus is the good person, you're all bad. I got one little amen there, so we don't, we, we don't want to acknowledge that, right? So we, no, 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 we're not bad. So ultimately, if you come under God's word, again, you have come to that place he blesses. If you don't, we, we, you leave that place of blessing, right? Uh, I, I had two children, and I, I know this. If my kids were trying to do the right thing, I would do everything I could to help them. But if they are doing the wrong thing, I'm not going to jump in there and help them do the wrong thing, am I? Well, this is the way God is our Father, right? So if, if, we, if we choose to live under the blessing of his word, then he blesses. If we choose not to, then he he doesn't, and so following the Bible improves your life because it points you to Christ so you may receive him as Savior Lord and go into heaven and thus granting you eternal life. That's the twofold purpose of the Bible is to grant you eternal life and to improve your life. This is what God is saying to us through, through the Apostle Paul. And so when um, Lifeway did a study several years ago, and they just wanted to see the effects, the impact of people reading the Bible. And they discovered that people who read the Bible about one to three times a week, that there is virtually no change in their life for, you know, over, over a long period of time. But those who read the scripture four times or more, there were dramatic changes in their lives. Dramatic changes in their emotions, their anxiety, their depression, um, they're, they're how they viewed themselves, how they viewed the world, uh, how they made decisions, bad or other, you know, better decisions, more hope for the future. And there are one of three ways that you can view God's word. You can either view God's word as being perfect and ultimately from God, which is what we believe and what we teach. Or the second group comes along and says, no, this isn't written by God. It was just written by man about God. And therefore, it's full of mistakes and fables and, you know, fairy tales. And it might have great moral examples, but it doesn't really reveal the truth of God. And the third group are those who have a mixture of both, right? Well, some of it's from God. Some of it's not from God. And so, you know, we would pick up the Bible and say, well, God loves you. Yeah, you, you got that right, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, in Christ, you can become a new creation. Yeah, I'm, I'm all into that. And then there's this thing about hell. No, I don't like hell. Let's throw that out. Uh, wages of sin is debt. No, I don't like that. Let's throw it. So this is the way some people approach the Bible is that they see God's word as uh, perhaps somewhat inspired, but is filled with flaws. And uh, therefore, we don't know what we can trust and what we cannot trust. And so what Paul is saying to us is that we will be judged ultimately by God's word. And the more we live in God's word, the more we live in his blessing. This is what God told Joshua in Joshua 
hey, be, be very careful to take my word and read it, study it, meditate upon it, and obey it. And if you do, then things will go well. If you don't, they won't. And so this is the objection, Paul. The second objection he gets is regarding God's faithfulness. Um, well, there's obviously there are some Jews who are were not faithful to God, and so they, they question. They say, well, will God rescind all of his promises to the Jews if they, don't, if they didn't follow them? Like, if we, if we didn't, if we didn't uh, follow God's promises, is, God's gonna, is he going to rescind what he promised to give us? How he promised to protect us? And so this is the question that they pull out on the table. It says in, in verse 3, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man is a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you when you judge. And so here's the question. Did God make a lot of promises to the Jews? Whole Old Testament full of them. He made all kinds of promises. But here's the problem. Some of those promises were conditional. Some of them were unconditional. Conditional promise would be, if you do this, I will do that. But not all of them were conditional. Some of them were unconditional. God made promises to Israel that he's going, has fulfilled, will fulfill, regardless if they are faithful to him or not. And so they're asking the question, is that mean that now, you know, is, is God going to nullify those things? And, and they're questioning God's faithfulness to his word. And Paul comes along and says, no, no, no. He's speaking here of the unconditional promises and he says, no, God will always be faithful to those unconditional promises he gave you. And so there are a lot of um, believers, for example, who go to church for a while, but then they become unfaithful to God, right? Uh, many children grow up in Christian homes. They go to church because you bring them to church. You make them go to church. They don't have a choice. But after they get out of your house, after they get to college, or after they get out of your house into a job, now they can do whatever they want, and so now they choose not to go to church. They choose not to follow the things of God. They choose to go their own way, to do their own thing, and so now they're being unfaithful to God. So if they were truly born of the Spirit of God, would God nullify that promise of eternal security? Absolutely not. They might live, as Paul says in Corinthians, as a carnal believer. They're a, they're a believer, but they're living like an unbeliever. And that might bring God's hand of discipline against them, which it will, because God says, you're, I'm the father, you're my child. If I see you heading in the wrong direction, that's going to bring harm into your life. I'm going to do everything in my power, not to pay you back, but to bring you back on that pathway that leads to the destination that is best for you. And so God is faithful to his promises, whether believer or unbeliever, God is faithful to his word. How many times have, how many of you have seen God faithful to you even when you were unfaithful to, to him? And this is what Paul is ultimately saying, that God is always faithful to his word, whether believer or unbeliever, God is always faithful. And so God is driving all of history towards a final destination. And no one is going to stop that. Doesn't matter what humanity does, God is going to unfold his perfect plan, his promise, the faithfulness of his promises, regardless of what humanity might do. 
And so if we belong to Jesus, um, it will, you know, ultimately, God says he's going to drive everything towards a final judgment. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And it is there that your works will be judged and you will be rewarded or lose rewards as a result of what we do here on earth. Unbeliever, there's the eternal white throne judgment. And so there, those who are judged there are cast into hell. And there it is, the, the punishment is fitting the crime. And so the Bible talks about both of these judgments. Right? So we can, we can live in a fantasy world and say, well, you know, that, that's just folklore. Uh, that's just myth. That's just, you know, fables. Somebody's made all of that up and live in fantasy or we can face reality. And Paul's trying to get us to face reality. This is where, this is where the world is heading. And so the important question is, and what he's driving us to is, who do you think Jesus is? Why did he come? What did he do? What did he do on our behalf that would enable us to bypass the wrath of God, the judgment of God, eternity in hell, and God says, I've provided everything for you to bypass that. So here's the third uh, objection is regarding God's righteousness, his justice. In verses 5 and 6, he says, um, well, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That, That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm saying is a human argument. Certainly no. If that were so, how could God judge the world? So let me unfold that. Um, <laughs> so Paul is saying, um, listen, if, if God is faithful to us, even when we're unfaithful, it seems that when I sin, that God is faithful to his promise and, and that if I would confess my sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive me and cleanse me. So if I'm sinning and God, that just brings out God's faithfulness more. That I, like I'm making God look good because his grace is, is coming to the forefront. Then what I need to do is sin more so that God can forgive me more. And then I make God look better. And therefore God won't judge me for my sin because after all, my sin is making God look really good in the eyes of the world. That's the argument. What Paul is doing here is something that debaters do that takes a line of thinking and tries to stretch it out to the ridiculousness of that philosophy. That would be like me like saying to my wife, uh, honey, I've got a confession to make to you. Um, I just want you to know I've, I've had several affairs on you, um, but you know, um, you're so faithful and loving as a wife, um, I really need to keep doing that because if I keep doing that and you keep forgiving me, then the people will see that you're so loving and faithful. So I'm really making you look good in the eyes of all your friends and family. Therefore, I need to keep having affairs. This is the argument that they were making. This is what Paul is addressing. Um, Ludicrous, right? I would be dead right now. Ultimately, uh, where he is driving all of his argument in Roman is that God will judge everyone in one of two ways. He will either judge you in Christ or he will judge you in hell. There's the only two options. This is reality. Because of our condition, we are sinners to the core. There's no one who's righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The wages of sin is death. The Bible reels over and over about this. So Jesus Christ 
was judged in our place. He endured the wrath of God in our place. And the story of God is that we are, are bad, but God is good. And Jesus came representing God, and Jesus was good, and humanity was so bad that they murdered him for his goodness. But Jesus came for a divine reason, for a divine purpose, so that he might stand in our place, that he may take his sin, our sin, upon himself, so that he could give us his righteousness and credit it to our account, which is what Paul says in Romans 1, verses 18. And so Jesus... He took all of our judgment and gave us all of his forgiveness. He took all of our unrighteousness and gave us all of his righteousness. He, he took all of the debt and gave us life. And he took se our separation from God and he brought us into union with God through Christ. Reconciliation. Jesus on the cross was judged in our place, asked, taking our sin, paying the price, and endured the wrath of God so that you and I could receive what? the forgiveness of God, that we could receive the glory of God, the God, that we could be reconciled with God. That means you don't have to worry about dying because I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, I know I am secure in Jesus and therefore I don't have to fear the wrath of God and neither will you. That's grace. Now, if you reject Jesus, the only other judgment is the judgment that Jesus brings at the great white throne in which you have rejected him, and therefore he has to judge you now on the basis of your works and the basis of your sin, and therefore you're cast out of his presence. That's why Jesus says you must be as perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, none of us are perfect, right? And the only way we can be perfect in the eyes of God is for God to make a judicial move to let somebody stand in our place to justify us in his eyes. And he's going to talk about this next, we're talking about this next week. Justification means it's just as if I've never sinned. How can that be? Because I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at me as a judge, he doesn't see my sin. He sees Jesus and his righteousness. Jesus is the one who paid the debt for my, my sin and for yours. So it brings us to the next argument regarding God's truthfulness. In verse 7, it says, Someone might argue well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is, is deserved. It would be like saying, Pastor, uh, I know the choice I'm about to make is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways because I know God will forgive me. One of the things Paul will deal with in Romans chapter 6, he says, should we continue in our grace, so that, in our sin, so that grace might abound, so that God can just keep displaying his grace? Let's just keep on sinning. And he said, in the strongest words possible, may it never be that way. And so grace and forgiveness is not a license to sin. Never confuse forgiveness with approval. Here's what you need to know about sin. Yes, God forgives sin, but sin leaves memories. A lot of memories. 
You can accept God's forgiveness, you can receive God's forgiveness, but it does not erase your memories. Satan knows this, and so he wants to play on your mind, because remember, Paul has already said that the mind of an unbeliever is a reprobate mind, is a darkened mind, it is a mind that is infected by sin, and so he would say something like this to a woman who feels like she has no other option in life, she's become pregnant, and she has no other option but to have an abortion, and she goes into an abortion clinic, and they say something like this, well, we can take care of this problem, we can erase it, and, and it will be gone, you begin a brand new, fresh start in life, and she has that abortion, the problem is she can't erase the memory of that abortion, and about a year later, she comes across a baby that would be about the age of her baby had it been born in full term and she just breaks down and melts with this overwhelming sense of shame and guilt because of the memory of her sin. Now the good news is that Jesus can forgive, he can cleanse, he can remove the shame and the guilt, but the memories are there. If God works it all out, he he shouldn't be angry with me, as Paul says. We make a mess, God fixes it, and then why in the world is he upset? <laughs> I do bad, God gets credit. He's good. This is, why, this is why Joseph said to his brothers, who, you know, put him in a pit and sold him off into slavery, he says, listen, you guys did that to me. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for my, my good. God took your evil actions and turned it into something beneficial in my life. And so God can do that. And he does that over and over again. He's trying to get us to see that the truthfulness of God's word is that we are sinners. We need a savior. We are the problem. We are not the solution. How many of you are feeling judged and discouraged right now? Well, it only gets worse. Regarding um, man's sinfulness. This is the last objection. Notice what it says. Uh, what shall we conclude then? What's going to be the conclusion here, Paul? Uh, are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the, the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under, under what? Sin. Now, this word sin, um, it speaks of total depravity. Now, what does total depravity mean? It simply means that a person, every person, is influenced, infected, and affected by sin. Let me repeat that again. Every human being that has ever entered into the world is infected, influenced, and affected by sin. That word under is the Greek word hupo, which means more than just being beneath something. It literally means that you're totally under the power, the authority, or the control of someone or something. He's saying every human being, both Jews and Greeks, are all under completely subservient to and in bondage to the dominion of sin. So why is it important for us to understand that? Because, listen, if God's going to do a work in our lives, it can't just be a surface thing. Salvation is not about behavior modification. Salvation is about God doing a radical work in the deepest part of you that is humanly possible. That sin has affected, again, our mind, our emotions, our will, our body, 
every aspect of our being. And we can't get away from it. We can deny it. We can suppress it. We can run from it. We, we can, you know, do all kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is, the human condition is we are in sin. And so think about this, this way. If I had a bottle of water up here, let's say I've got a, I should have grabbed my bottle of water, and there's pure spring water in there, but I took an eyedropper and dropped one drop of poison in that water. Has it contaminated part of it or all of it? You better believe it's all of it. And this is the picture that Paul is painting. We have been so infected by, influenced by, and affected by sin. We are under its dominion and its power and its authority over our lives. And we in and of ourselves have no capacity to set ourselves free. And it affects every aspect of our lives. I have people say to me, well, you know, I... Those who don't believe the Bible, they say, well, uh, well I, I don't believe the Bible. I just like believe in science. I am not against science. I love science. But science is an issue of the mind. Why would you trust a mind that has been infected by sin? Or what you need to do is just follow your heart. Why would you want to follow a heart that the Bible says is deceitful, Evil and wicked above all else, and nobody can tame it. See, this is how the Bible describes. This is the, this is, this is the, the, um, the doctor speaking to us, says this is the problem, that you got a heart issue, and so we need to, the heart is deceptive. It's just naturally evil. And so the basic assumption of man is that we are basically good, right? That, that the Bible says that we are basically guilty, and we, we feel guilty about our guilt, that's what the Bible says. Humanity says, nah, people are just basically good. We may do bad things once in a while, but by and large, mankind is good. What Paul is trying to say, get us to see is not, that's not true at all. We are not basically good. We are, we are fundamentally sinful, and we cannot, you know, just like pull it out of us. We can't separate it out of the water. Nobody's that good. It has affected every aspect of our being. You know, I read an article um, Psychology Today a while back on how to stop feeling guilty. Well, the Bible says if you want to stop feeling guilty, repent of your sin, turn to Jesus, and apply the gospel to your life, and, and the, 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 um, the grace of God and the forgiveness of God can cleanse you of your guilt and your shame. You know what the article said? Um, it said, well, if you want to get rid of your guilty feelings, you need to change your perspective on how you look at it. Or you need to reflect on the lessons that you have learned. This has been a teaching moment. Or you need to just do something good for yourself. Or better yet, go do something good for somebody else. And you'll no longer feel guilty. The reason we feel guilty is because we are guilty. And so Paul now submits further evidence. And uh, we're just going to run through these quickly. He gives 14 indictments using three categories to say to humanity, listen, I'm telling you, ain't nobody righteous, and let me prove it to you. And so he gives this descriptive. He says, all mankind is, seen, is guilty by seen, as seen by their character. Um, 
He says in, in, in verse 10, again, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. That speaks of your mind. There's no one who seeks God. That speaks of your motive. All have turned away. They have, cut, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That speaks of the things that we, we do. And so separate from what we actually do, Paul says fundamentally, this is who we are. Our character displays the fact that we are all guilty and infected, impacted by sin on a day in and day out basis. How many of you have raised kids? How many of your children came with a, brand, a, a free brand new sin nature? Every single one of them. And it doesn't take long for you to find that out. And it only gets worse as time goes on. And by the time they become teenagers, you think that they have lost their ever-loving mind and you're going to lose yours. I wish I could say it gets better, but I can't guarantee that for you. And so sometimes people, um, they may not do anything necessarily overtly evil, but he says evil resides within us. In other words, um, what God fundamentally needs to change is in the core of our being. It's not just, um, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to give you three steps on how to become a better spouse or four steps on how to overcome your, your sin habit. Or said, These things are not going to help you until you have been changed on the inside. You must be transformed from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so this is the difference between religion and relationship. Religion is all about doing the outward stuff, hoping I'll be acceptable in God's eyes. But relationship is about Jesus coming into our hearts and our lives through the person of the Holy Spirit and transforming us from the inside out so that we can become a brand new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And as we go deeper in the gospel, we learn how to live that out. And he said, this word righteousness refers to a legal standing before God. Sin has ruined that legal standing. And, and I, I think Paul anticipated somebody said, well, now, Paul, my Aunt Susie, God rest her soul, was not a Christian, but she was the most kind, compassionate person I think I've ever met. You mean to tell me that she ain't making it to heaven? She was so good. And Paul says, ain't a one of us good. There's none of us who are righteous. You see, there is either perfect righteousness in Christ or there is perfect sinfulness apart from Christ. There's no in-between. You either became righteous in Jesus through accepting the gospel, Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, or you have not. You see, as humans, we tend to evaluate somebody on the basis of, of degrees, right? Um, how good are they? You know, these people are really, really good, and these, eh, not so much, and these people are just like pure evil over here, and, and we, we've, we pigeonhole people in degrees of goodness, and so when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, good teacher? You remember what Jesus says? Why do you call me good? There's no one who's good but God. And Jesus was in essence saying, you're looking at Messiah, I am God, you're right, I am good, but you're not. 
So let me have you, let, let me put you through a little test here about your goodness. And he says, no one understands. That, that's knowledge without wisdom. That's called college. You'll get that. Uh, we take the mind of God and we use it to argue against God rather than to agree with God. But what Paul is saying, listen, nobody has the mind to comprehend God. Sin has corrupted our minds and we are ignorant, not in a derogatory way. It's just that we just don't know what we don't know. That's why Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 2, listen, you can, you can give people all kinds of spiritual truth, but they just can't understand it. They just can't comprehend it unless the Spirit of God helps them in that area. In our character, we're just like, we, he's saying mankind is, is ignorant relative to God. And God has done this great service by sending his son to reveal the father. And he's given us his word to understand what the father has done. And he, he goes on to say, that's why nobody seeks after God. Say, oh, wait a minute. I sought after God. I'm seeking God. No, you're not. People don't seek God. What they do seek is they, want, they seek God to, to answer a prayer they're praying. They seek God because they want, you, they want God to fix their spouse. Amen. Uh, they seek God because they want something from him. They don't seek God for who he truly is. They seek God for the God that they have constructed in their mind. They seek a God that they can control. They seek a God that they can conform to their wishes and their will. But no one seeks after God. How do I know that? Because when sin entered into the realm of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, what did Adam and Eve do? Did they go seeking after God? They ran. They fled. God went looking for them. Hey, where are you guys? Well, we hid ourselves. Well, why'd you do that? Well, you know, that woman you gave me, she's the problem. Lord, I'm telling you, she's the problem. Ever since you brought her into the garden, we've had nothing but problems. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, no one comes into me unless the Father draws him. And so, if you're seeking God, it's because God is seeking you, not the other way around. If you're here today, you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you're here because God's seeking you. And maybe God, you know, allows some frustrations in your life and you to bump up against some walls because he wants you to understand that Jesus is, is the way. And Paul said that those who are trying to find their own way, he says it, it, they, it becomes worthless. That word worthless means like sour milk. How many of you want to drink sour milk? In the other words, he says life just sours. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work out anymore. And so um, somebody might say, Paul, are you having a bad day? Like, are you really grumpy? Um, you know, but see, here's the problem. Man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. You ever done anything, a, a good thing with a bad motive? We call that dating, by the way. I bring a, a young lady flowers, candy, take her out to eat because I want something from her, right? So maybe that wasn't for you, I don't know, but uh, it may have been for somebody else. You say, well, wouldn't you rather have people do good than evil? That's not the issue here. Here's why I bring this up. Here's what people do. They develop some kind of merit system in their lives. And 
You talk to people, 99.9%, if you say, you know, do you know if you die today, you're going to go to heaven? You know, if you've got a relationship with Christ, they'll say, but I'm a good person. Well, I do these things. I don't do this, I do this, I do this, I don't do this. And they've set up this merit system by which they're going to work their way into the presence of God. And this is Paul's whole argument. Ain't one of us is going to argue our way into God's presence. It comes through Christ alone, by faith alone. All man is guilty by the cause of what? Their conversation. He says in verse 13, their throats are like open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursings and bitterness. I mean, our words come from a place of death within us. It's the stench of death. Jesus said something similar. He said people look, look great outwardly, but they're whitewashed tombstones. And inwardly, they, they have the stench of death. And so he says, just look at people's speech patterns. Because what is in the heart comes out through their words. Cursings and bitterness. Bitterness means, like, I hate you, you did this, I judge you, I condemn you, I shame you, I publicly disgrace you. We do this all the time on social media with people, right? Somebody does something, man, people are on there, da, 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 you know, just blowing people up. Or cursing means, you know, you're never going to change, you're, not, you're hopeless, you're without hope. And so this place of, of corruption that is within us comes out through the words that we speak. I mean, just think about your own words over the last month. How much gossip, how much slander, how much putting people down, how much anger, how much boasting, how much half-truths. And he says, it is the stench of death that is inside of us. This is why people speak the way they do. And here's the third one. Now, mankind is guilty because of their conduct. In verses 15 through 18, they're swift to shed blood. Do you know out of 3,241 years of history, um, there is only 268 years without war, according to historian Will Durant. We are quick to shed blood. This is just part and in misery to mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. Speaking of the soul, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And he says, this is what's driving all this. You know, I just watched another um, thing, on, not only on the rise of violence in airports and in, on the streets, but now there's such a rise in violence in our public schools that they're, they're trying to figure, they got committees out there and are trying to figure out what are we going to do about this? I mean, these kids aren't, you know, when I was in school, you get in a little fist fight, you know, you got to kind of duke it out and, and it was over with. Not now, Betty. I mean, they're just like, they, they're not done with you until you're like knocked out and dead if they can make you that way. And so it's becoming a huge issue. This is, this is the, there's no peace within us. And so we just, uh, we just shatter people's lives as much as we can. Why? Because there's no fear of God. There's no fear. There's no reverential fear of God any longer. And so Paul concludes his argument. And here's what he says in verse 19 and 20. And we close. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says that those who are under the law, so that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by doing good things. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Notice that word sin is not plural. It's singular. He's talking about our sin nature, fundamentally who we are, infected, affected by sin. And so his concluding argument is the whole world is accountable to God and the whole world is without excuse. Man is not basically good. We are the problem Jesus is the solution. That's why Santa is a heretic. He has two lists, naughty and nice. Ain't nobody nice. We're all naughty. 
That's what Paul would say. We're all naughty. Don't send me emails on that one. Here's God's final verdict. God's final verdict is simply this. We are all guilty beyond reasonable doubt. So what's God's solution? The gospel. Jesus took your place. He took the punishment for your sins so that if you put your faith in him, your sins would be forgiven. Your guilt would be erased. Your rap sheet would be expunged. And your record of crimes would be wiped out. And this can only happen when you put your faith in him and you are gripped by his grace. Let's pray together.